From Capital News Illinois in Springfield, I'm Peter Hancock. I'm Rebecca Anzel. And I'm Jerry Nowicki. And this is Capital Cast. It's been a week of significant bill signings, a rare gubernatorial veto, and an explosive report out of House Speaker Michael Madigan's office about a climate of bullying and harassment in the Illinois State House. Let's start off with that report from Speaker Madigan's office. Rebecca Anzel, uh, let's start with you because you covered this report. Uh, tell us about how the report came about and what it said. If we go back to June 2018, um, there were some allegations of harassment and discrimination and intimidation that had uh, come back and stemmed from um, House Speaker Michael Madigan's office. And so a group of female lawmakers um, in the House Democratic Caucus and um, the Speaker himself had called for an independent investigation into the workplace culture of that office. Former Executive Inspector General Maggie Hickey um, was called in. She was hired to do this investigation. Her report just came out on Tuesday. It was published publicly. She basically found that former Chief of Staff Tim Mapes um, sort of contributed to this culture of bullying, intimidation, harassment, as you alluded to. Employees felt like they had to take on certain responsibilities and jobs that were sort of demeaning and not quite in their job description. They felt as though um, if they experienced harassment or perhaps things were said to them that were inappropriate, they wouldn't be taken seriously. Overall, it was sort of a culture that stemmed from the chief of staff. He, he, he had a whole bunch of different jobs at the top, and Speaker Madigan apparently was not aware that all this was happening. And so he, in the statement, said that he, he didn't really, he couldn't do much about it. And that was the part that seemed kind of surprising to a lot of people. I mean, he is the Speaker of the House. He's in charge of that office. This climate existed for apparently a very long time. And it, is it conceivable that he didn't know about it? To me, Peter, uh, what it, what seems to be the case is that he intentionally didn't know about it. He, he had Tim Mapes, um, Tim Mapes amassed all this power within the office because the speaker sort of gave him that leash. And the report seemed to indicate that the speaker didn't want anything to do with that type of information. Okay, and so Governor Pritzker has been asked about this a couple of times, uh, most recently at a news conference that Jerry, you and I were at on Thursday, and here's what he had to say. I have expressed my uh, deep concern, um, and the fact that this is unacceptable in state government, um, in the Capitol, um, he knows where I stand on this. Uh, You know, I also have taken my own steps within our administration uh, across all the agencies as well as in the governor's office itself to make sure that we have the kinds of policies and procedures that protect people who might get harassed or uh, or worse uh, to make sure that they feel that, you know, they can come forward, no retribution, that we're going to protect them in the process and that we'll ultimately have independent investigations wherever Uh, We need them to make sure that people's allegations are completely heard. And then, as I said yesterday, transparency is critically important. Once we know that people need to be held accountable uh, and there's information that that ultimately, as a result, should be shared, we want to make sure that it's transparent. 
Okay, so it sounds like he's saying, I'm aware of the problem. The speaker knows that I'm aware of the problem. doesn't sound like they've spoken directly to each other about it, and the speaker is just kind of saying, this is the speaker's, that's the speaker's office, not my office. He seems to be really staying away from this. Yeah, and one of the other things is, in a different interview, this uh, the governor had said, it depends on what the speaker knew and when he knew it. That sort of glosses over the fact that the speaker should know about that stuff if it's going on. The speaker's chief of staff, uh, the new one, Jessica Basham, uh, said in an email yesterday that House Speaker Mike Madigan also believes that to further increase this new culture that he's trying to cultivate of transparency, the other three caucuses in the General Assembly should undergo the similar sort of investigation into their offices and see what their workplace culture is like. And so here we are in the second or third year of the Me Too movement. Is there any indication that this is more widespread than just the Speaker's office or just within the Democratic caucus in the House? So the former legislative inspector general, Julie Porter, wrote in an op-ed published in the Tribune in April that um, she had finished a report into an investigation into a lawmaker. And um, the panel of lawmakers that sort of controls whether these reports are published and made public um, decided that that report should not be made public. And so there is a report she indicated. We don't know what the allegations against this lawmaker are, who the lawmaker is, what caucus he or she belongs to. But there is this report that um, a lawmaker accused of some sort of misconduct um, exists and is not being made public and so there there's a chance of course that something is happening somewhere um yeah i mean i would say there's there's no harassment and bullying and that type of culture isn't isn't specific to any one house or any one party there's i mean it's the capital. There's a lot of powerful people here, and, and, and powerful people sometimes get carried away. Yeah, I've heard it say that sexual harassment isn't really about sex. It's about power and exerting power over another person. And this is a place where power is the currency of the realm, really, in, in the state house. So it's perhaps not to be unexpected that there would be uh, that kind of a culture, especially if there's not a, another culture that really... Uh, keep, tries to keep a handle on it. Yeah, that, that, that seems like a good point. Okay, well, it was also a week when Governor Pritzker signed yet another bill aimed at protecting or assisting the state's immigrant community. This time, it was about tenants' rights protecting immigrants from harassment or eviction by their landlords on the basis of citizenship or immigration status. And here's what Governor Pritzker had to say earlier this week um, when he signed the bill into law have worked tirelessly for years to beat back attacks on so many fronts. The racist and xenophobic attacks from the White House, demonstrated once again today by President Trump's efforts to keep immigrants detained indefinitely, and Governor Rauner's vetoes that created more anxiety among our immigrant communities. And today, even as our fight goes on, we're taking a moment to celebrate an important piece of legislation that was worked on by the advocates and the legislators standing behind me. Okay, so this is yet another example of Governor Pritzker 
not only signing legislation to protect immigrants, but going out of his way to contrast his administration with the Trump administration and with previous the previous governor, Republican Bruce Rauner. Uh, what do you read into that? I read into it that he's talking to the people that put him in the office. Uh, I think he had 55% of the vote, roughly, uh, compared to whatever Governor Rauner had, 40, 45. And um, his message when he ran was a largely an anti-Trump message, so it, it, it plays well with the people he needs it to play well with. And I do believe there's got to be some sort of sincerity there um, th- that you know these, these people are being extorted by these landlords in, in certain extents um, just because of because of where they came from. And apparently there were some actual incidents uh, in the Chicago area of a landlord trying to coerce an immigrant tenant into doing uncompensated work in the building uh, and being threatened with uh, exposure as an immigrant or someone who wasn't supposed to be in the country did, who wasn't in the country legally at the time. Uh, this kind of thing appear, does appear to go on in Illinois and probably many other places. Yeah, uh, and but as you, uh, I think, pointed out in your story there, uh, the rental property owners even weren't opposed to the bill because they knew it, it, it focused on those bad actors rather than made their task more unduly burdensome. Yeah, I think they had some concerns when the topic first came up, but they were actively involved in writing the legislation so that when the final draft was there, I think they were neutral on it. They weren't for it, but they didn't come out in opposition to it. So another bill this week was one raising the minimum salary for teachers in Illinois, phasing it into $40,000 a year over the next four years. The idea behind this was to address what many are saying is a critical teacher shortage in Illinois. And at a news conference Thursday, we heard from one teacher, Bentley Stewart, who teaches in the Jacksonville district. And here's what she's had to say about what it's like being a young teacher, not earning very much money. While I was in college, many of my favorite teachers back home were discouraging me from finishing my education degree because of the low pay and the student debt. Many of them picked up extra jobs that kept them away from their own families. I persevered, but I did have to move back home with my parents and picked up another job as I began teaching uh, to supplement the pay and to manage my student loan debt that is very high. This new law will allow future teachers to begin the profession with that confidence they need. Now, we heard Governor Pritzker say that last year there were some 1,500 teaching jobs throughout the state that went unfilled. Uh, this is getting to be a serious problem for the state, don't you think, Jerry? Yeah, and it's harder for some of the downstate districts to to keep uh, and maintain educators. Uh, and that's why the senators and the representative that brought this bill forward are, are from, you know, this downstate area where the Jacksonville School District is. And we should point out, Jacksonville is just a little bit west of Springfield uh, here in central Illinois, a uh, very small town, actually. Right. So, you know, Senator Menar, uh, Representative Katie Stewart, um, it's it's their districts more so than, you know, the suburban ones where, where teachers are, are paid pretty fairly as, as, you know, in this state, as you pointed out in your your uh, article. And this is actually just one of a number of bills, and Senator Andy Menard from Bunker Hill has been behind most of them, uh, trying to address the teacher shortage. There was one that eliminated a very burdensome uh, exam that 
prospective teachers had to take, uh, and now this minimum wage bill, there have been a couple of others. Uh, so is there any sense that maybe Illinois is going to turn the corner here, uh, maybe start being able to attract and recruit more teachers? Uh, I think the evidence-based funding formula, which puts more money in education, would help in that regard. I just don't know how quickly any of it will happen. That's a, a decade or more away from uh, uh, bringing all districts to an adequate funding level. Okay, and finally this week we saw Governor Pritzker issue a rare veto of legislation. This one was kind of surprising because it had to do with guns or gun-like things in schools. Uh, Jerry, tell us about what happened with that bill? Yeah, that bill was from uh, Senator Chapin Rose from Muhammad, which is just outside of Champaign. And uh, it, it was for, uh, re, uh, in response to some incidences in schools in his district, uh, in particular Mount Zion. And it uh, basically it would uh, require expulsion for anyone who brings a BB gun to school or something like that, a paintball gun, and, and creates panic with it, you know, when people think it's a real gun. But it would also give the school board and the superintendent the ability um, to walk back an expulsion, you know, if, if it was just some incidental thing, you know, where they, they're going paintballing after school and have it in their car. So the governor in his veto message said he doesn't want anything to do with uh, exacerbating the school-to-prison pipeline in the state. He doesn't, an expulsion you know, you're more likely to go on the wrong track after that. And that has gotten to be a national issue, actually, that um, too often uh, students are expelled from school. Uh, they're often too young to work a job, and so they, they're not supervised and leads to what you just described as the school-to-prison pipeline, uh, that it doesn't really seem to solve anything. Uh, and you probably should point out that in... Uh, that previous tape that we heard from the Jacksonville teacher, she actually teaches at a special school that deals specifically with at-risk students, and she teaches kids who've been expelled or suspended from their regular classes. So that uh, has gotten to be an, an issue nationwide. Right. So some of the nuance with that bill is um, that they want alternative schools to be an option in this case because, uh, you know, the, the student in particular had brought a gun to school and, and really created some panic there. And as the superintendent from Mount Zion pointed out, it was a safety issue for that student because a school resource officer isn't going to know that that's not a real gun. So um, they're going to work on language. The governor and the sponsors decided uh, that that'll give some leeway there, but the governor doesn't want it to start with expulsion. Uh, but in the other nuances, it also treats BB guns, in this case, the, way, the same way knives and brass knuckles are currently treated under law. So, okay. And so this was, I believe, only the fifth veto that the governor has issued, and this is after his first session when the legislature passed 599 bills. Quite a contrast with Governor Rauner, actually, who seemed to be vetoing bills kind of left and right. Yeah, um, there's... Uh, Three of the vetoes, I think, were just because the language in them was passed in another bill this session, so it was kind of superfluous. And that does happen occasionally. Right. And the other one was, I think, uh, related to the Affordable Care Act. I don't know much about that one. Uh, that was one where it prohibited uh, the administration from seeking waivers that would reduce benefits below what's required under the Affordable Care Act. Um, 
probably should point out also that the Immigrant uh, Tenant Protection Act and the minimum wage for teachers uh, were also bills that Governor Rauner had vetoed in previous sessions. Uh, So again, Pritzker is kind of really drawing a sharp contrast between himself and the previous administration. And veto session this year, which is the week of October 28th and the week of November 16th, will be interesting to see because last year it was very uh, heavy with the General Assembly considering how many of Governor Rauner's many vetoes to override. Um, And this session there are, as we mentioned, five vetoes so far. Um, So we'll see what what the General Assembly does during veto session. Yeah, he's got about 100 Hundred plus bills left to sign or veto. So, and we'll be following those for the next week or so because the deadline is coming up for him to take action, uh, one way or the other, on those bills. That's all the time we have this week for Capital Cast. Again, I'm Peter Hancock here with Jerry Nowicki and Rebecca Ansel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>